Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. I'm here at the Commonwealth Club with my co-host, John Zipper. John, thanks so much for being with us. Michelle, always great to have you here. Today, our guest is an investigative reporter and journalist for ProPublica and Frontline on PBS. His latest documentary, Documenting Hate Charlottesville, just aired ahead of the one-year anniversary of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. Let's welcome A.C. Thompson to the program. A.C., thanks so much for making it out here. Thanks for having me on. Um, So you started documenting hate during the presidential election why? What inspired you? What happened? What what triggered you? You know, I was talking with my editor and I said, I have just seen this resurgence of white power, white supremacist activity that I thought was dead. You know, I thought like you got to the middle of the 90s, late 90s, and it had died off and suddenly it was back. So I was seeing that and that was worrisome to me. And I was also seeing what seemed to be a significant number of hate crimes and hate crimes that were associated with things like Words like get out of my country and things that seem to be incidents where people seem to be referencing the president when they engaged in criminal activity. I said, I think this is something that we need to to look at and cover uh, thoroughly and systemically. Uh, So let's go back for I mean, when Charlottesville happened, uh, all of us who were not there were just kind of watching it kind of stunned as it got worse and worse. Mm. Um, and then the political debacle that followed got worse and worse day by day. Um, you were there, you were on the ground. Um, tell us what you thought when you were heading there. What did, before you even, as you've written about, you know, kind of driving mm. up there, seeing the, the troops and such, what, when you were planning to go there, what were you expecting to find? Okay, so the year, year and a half before that had been really violent. There had been a Klan rally in Hanaheim where three people got stabbed. There was a Nazi rally in Sacramento where seven people got stabbed. There was the the battles of Berkeley in Berkeley in early uh, 2017, the spring, where there was basically open warfare, political warfare in the streets. So I thought this could be a bad and ugly, violent situation. But I also thought there's a possibility that the police in Charlottesville have learned from all this, that they've seen what's happened at these other rallies. And I thought, you know, maybe they'll be prepared to deal with this. When I got there, I was sort of stunned at how unprepared Mm -hmm. they were and that the level of preparation was even worse than all the events that had come forward and uh, had come before that. And that they just, the police from the first event that happened there, the torch march on the night of August 11th, all the way to the end of the events, did not seem particularly motivated to engage and shut down violence uh, and stop violence from happening before it did. And we see as it's happening, you're talking to police officers saying, why aren't you, you know, intervening? We see the video of when when that gentleman was was beaten in the car park, people going over to the police officers across the street, right by the police department and saying, you know, go stop this, do your job. And and they're saying no. Lack of preparation or intentional? uh... Yeah, you know, at the time, it wasn't at all clear. It wasn't at all clear, like, what is going on? And and all that stuff that you're discussing happened. I mean, I remember on the night of the 11th, when the torch march happened, not seeing any police officers there. And there was 
this mass of very angry white supremacists who were shoving people, threatening people, talking about killing people. And the only police I remember seeing at first were the ones that came up to my colleague, Kareem Hodge, and said, hey, you can't fly a drone here. And like, apparently that was a really important thing for them, not making sure that nobody got hurt. Right. Um, so I didn't know why this was happening at the time, why it was so laissez-faire, why the police were willing to allow people basically to kill each other. Mm. And then the city of Charlottesville commissioned a report and they really looked at what, what went wrong and what happened. And key things come out of that report. One is that the state police and the local police could not communicate with one another. Their radios didn't work uh, to communicate with one another. So they didn't know what the others were doing. The state police did never shared their operations plan with the local police. And there were 600 state cops there and something like 130 uh, local cops. So that's kind of an amazing thing. Like they never drilled together. They didn't share plans on what they were going to do. Um, there were big tactical blunders. Like the uh, police did not have their riot gear anywhere near the scene of what was going to be a riot. And so when uh, spasms of violence jumped off, they were not positioned to actually intervene. They didn't have protective gear. But I think the most important thing that comes out of the uh, investigations done afterwards by the city is that the chief of police at the time, a guy named Al Thomas, told two people uh, he was working with, just let them fight it out it'll be easier to declare an unlawful assembly. Now, the chief later said, no, actually what I, what I said was, let's just wait and see how this played out. It's not, a, and figure out what we'll do. It was a little different than what I was quoted as saying. Mm. But either way, we know that he had a hands-off approach to the violence that day, and that spiraled out of control and led to people being killed. Well, that's what my thought is often when you do have something that's, you know, you have people lining up on both sides, and the police are there in heavy presence, and both sides basically hate the police. Mm. And they've got the worst job in the world, I think, mm. where mm. they're potentially in life-threatening situations, and even the people they're defending are basically calling them names and throwing stuff at them. There's that, right. <laughs> which would have been a good situation right. had that been what had happened in, in Charlottesville. Uh, whereas, you know, just the scenes of them just standing there, I don't know, do you feel sorry for the police? Or did what did you think about the actual officers who were... I think the, the officers who were on the scene that day were remarkably disciplined in following orders and the orders were don't do anything. Okay. I think those were really bad orders. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, that's not a, that's not a pleasant situation for anybody to be in. Obviously. Um, I think, uh, there has been some soul searching about what went wrong that day and some, you know, the, the city's report on what happened really helps you understand. But I think in other quarters, people have really not owned up to what happened that mm. day. So the Virginia State Police, for example, who were a big part of all this, they didn't even participate in the report that the local police did, that the city did to figure out what happened. They, they did not participate. They didn't turn over information. And they had their own after action report that's basically a joke. I mean, it's not thorough, it's not detailed, it doesn't hold people accountable. And, and so I think in some quarters, there's still a failure to really reckon with the mortal consequences of that day. Speaking of accountability, I mean, even the president's response to what happened to Charlottesville 
uh, wasn't exactly the response that we thought we were going to get. In fact, <laughs> he walked back on the responses, even tried to do yeah. that um, in saying that there is violence on both sides. But I love the way that you took uh, your perspective and, and offered the viewers in the documentary and really asking the question of, you know, uh, the reality is that there were a lot of violent activity mm. um, and incidents that happened in Charlottesville. And, and you answered the question of, you know, who was responsible for mm. the violence? Who are these people? You know, so that was the thing that we were really interested in figuring out was like who we were there that day. We were seeing all this unfold. Who did these criminal acts and have they been held accountable? And the, the answer is the this answer to being held accountable is like, no, no, almost nobody was held accountable on of any political persuasion. Um, and the answer that we found out as to who they were was really, I thought, remarkable. Um, one young man that we profiled was an active duty Marine. He was also a member of a Nazi terrorist group that wants to overthrow the U.S. government through force of arms, uh, create a race war, and install a fascist dictatorship. So, so wrap your head around that. Mm -hmm. Participant in violence in Charlottesville, active duty Marine, member of a terrorist group that wants to overthrow the government. Those were the kind of people that were there. Um, but there were also people that were a little different. So a guy named Michael Miscellis that we profiled in the film um, was a PhD level engineer at Northrop Grumman. And we believe he was working on next generation military technology, aviation technology. So he didn't fit a lot of people's idea of, of a white supremacist activist. You know, I think a lot of people think kind of a redneck, maybe somebody who's not that bright, um, somebody from a blue collar background. And, and this guy was none of those things. He was obviously very bright and um, very, you know, quite successful in life. Uh, one thing I do want to point out and what I notice, I mean, when you think about, you know, white supremacists or uh, any anybody who holds on to those beliefs and values you think of before the civil rights or you think of Nazi Germany, mm. you don't necessarily think of the young 20-some-year-old mm. guy who's in the military or who's a UCLA scholar or, or working for the government or, you know, just a regular old guy who's hanging out in Orange County. Right. But you saw a lot of that in the documentary and a lot of people who were at Charlottesville don't even live in the area. No, most people who were in Charlottesville uh, were not from there. Uh, most people came in from out of state. There was uh, people from 35 different states. There were dozens of white power organizations involved. And I think a thing that's important to note is those groups were incredibly well organized. They were a lot of quite smart, quite savvy people. Uh, tended to be under 30, middle-class, well-educated, and they were able to move with pretty ruthless efficiency through the city. Um, and that was a thing that I don't think I was prepared for, to, that I didn't expect, that they would be that well-organized, you know, broken up into battalions and cells, um, coordinated by a bunch of different leaders with earpieces in. I mean, that was the sort of organization they had. Uh I'm kind of wondering, I mean, obviously, this, the supposed reason for this rally was this Robert E. Lee statue and the controversy over that. But there are Robert E. Lee statues littering the South. Um, I'm kind of wondering if they chose a small city knowing that it would be unprepared, you know, as opposed to 
heading into Washington, D.C. or, you know, some other city that not only is going to have a larger police force, mm. but is going to have a police force with an intelligence unit, which is going, you know, all that. It's going to have a SWAT team and all that kind of stuff. And so they went into a college town. I've been to Charlottesville because I had a friend mm. who went there after college and worked for their paper. It's a beautiful city. <laughs> um, it's a very nice city. And, um, you know, as as you, we saw in, in, in the documentary, uh, the mother of the girl who was killed, the woman, she was an mm. adult, um, was, you know, she's still there. She's still seeing these scenes of, you know, these places where this person was beaten up and her daughter was killed. Um, so actually, my question, I guess, really is, do you think the the size of Charlottesville and the therefore unpreparedness of it for just about anything like this was a reason they chose it? I think there's kind of several reasons. And what we've seen in the last couple of years is that the far right, racist, uh, fascist groups, they want to go to liberal places. They want to go to Berkeley. They want to go to Portland. They want to go to San Francisco. And they want to torment people there. And they particularly like to get that sort of uh, pushback, like, and to have that sort of uh, conflict with people, they they find that to be quite entertaining. But another thing is with Charlottesville, they had a local organizer on the ground who could coordinate everything for them, and the Klan had been there that summer, mm. and Richard Spencer and his White Power Brigade had been there that spring, and so this was a place that they knew well, and that you know, frankly, doesn't have a massive African American population, which I think is part of the reason they yeah. chose it. Um, that they thought maybe the resistance they would get would be a little, little less uh, vigorous. So I think there were a lot of reasons why they went there. But yeah, I think they saw it as a soft target. I want to come back to you know law enforcement a little later, and just kind of people who have authority coupled with the the president and his views, or anybody sitting with a ton of power and kind of embolden these types of groups. But when you talk about these groups, I mean they're small compared mm. to the entire population of America. But if you you give them, uh, you know, the opportunities, the power to exist. I think that, you know, that can be very dangerous. Um, my question is focused on some responses from these rallies. Some people think that if you give them the attention, they're just going to do more harm. If you ignore them, then they'll go away. Your documentary, I think, shed some light and profiled some of these folks who then the organizations, the companies that they worked for, said these, we don't share those values. Mm. And then, the, you know, they were either let go, they were fired. I think I think that we do need to spotlight, we do need to identify, and we do need to talk about, you know, these groups that potentially can become very dangerous, especially under this political time. You know, for us, for my team of journalists, we we were just discussing this, like what we want to do is we want to hold violent actors accountable for their possibly criminal behavior. We want to hold the public and private institutions that aid and abet them accountable. So whether that's um, a police force that's been infiltrated by a white supremacist, whether that's a military that has a Nazi in the ranks, whether that is a big corporation that says, hey, you know, this is not something we're down for, white supremacist activities, um, or whether that's police who just don't vigorously pursue the cases where they should involving these groups. Our sort of spot is looking at that, the accountability piece, 
and looking at the criminal actors, but not putting a microphone in the face of every white supremacist who wants to spout and giving them the platform and saying, hey, you know, take over our airwaves for a while and and uh, say what you have to say, because we don't really feel like these are legitimate arguments and that and, you know, that it's just kind of absurd. And we're not going to be the megaphone mm -hmm. for these characters. There's like there's not two sides to fascism. And, and, and you know, like fascism is uh, unequivocally a not good political philosophy. So we're, we're not going to play that game. Well, what's interesting is you you weren't necessarily giving these mm. uh, people, you know, a platform to speak and, and talk about what they believed in. In fact, um, they kind of wanted to stay a secret. Like it was like a second identity. Like right. some of them, the right. Pistolis guy was like, oh, it was never there. Yeah. Uh, that wasn't me. Right. When clearly you had photos, you had documentation. Right. I mean, you had help from even local law enforcement who gave you some of these names, identities of some of these guys who were there. Um What's that all about? You know, trying to hide from from that. Yeah, I mean, I should say, like, for people that we believe were engaged in criminal activity, we absolutely want to confront them, give them a chance to try to dissuade us or convince us if we have something wrong, that, you know, to do that fair kind of journalism and get their input. But we just don't want to give them the big soapbox. But your point is an interesting one. What we keep finding is people will tell us, I'm not involved. I'm not involved. Or I quit. Or um, that wasn't me on that video. Or another one that comes up a lot is if you don't report on me, I will give you a bunch of information about somebody else in the movement that I really don't like. It's basically uh, what, what the president would call ratting on people, you know. And so there's a lot of that. And I think really the, the thing that's been most difficult for the, for the white power movement to deal with over the last year, it's not the police. It's not the black clad mm -hmm. Antifa, it's um, public disapproval of their participation in this movement. And that's really the reason for the shrouded identities and for not wanting to admit that you're part of it uh, by, from a lot of these guys. I kind of remember back in the, I'm older than both of you, I'm sure, uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s when I was in college and there were speech codes that were kind of popular at that time that schools were putting in place. And basically their effect was if you say anything that is, that violates this code, um, you could be kicked out of the university and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And our argument against that was these groups, these, the, 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 these extremists, they flourish underground mm. because you don't have that disapproval, you know, in the, the fact that, I mean, if you haven't seen the Frontline documentary, it's on uh, the Frontline website, definitely watch it. it, it it's very powerful. But, you know, it, each person you'd be going to and just they're, they're squirming out of it is like, well, that's cool. <laughs> you kind of want that, you know, as, as you know, Commonwealth Club, we're nonpartisan or whatever. We're, we're on the side of democracy in a republic, you know. Right. Um, so it's kind of good to see the bad guys squirm. And if you don't ever try to hold them accountable, track them down, find out who they are, because you're also answering this, looking into the question of what kind of country are we that has this subculture flourishing? Um, I, you know, I think, I think this documentary and I think the work you do is doing a very important role by doing that. It's kind of like dragging them out from the underground, or at least when they stick their heads up, keeping their heads up long enough to say, okay, we've got a problem here. 
Well, in the case of uh, Blaise Bernstein, mm. and that's in, also mm. included in the documentary, a uh, Jewish gay young person who was murdered by, what was his name, Sam Woodward? Yeah, allegedly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and at first, it wasn't considered a hate crime. Right. And, and later, the hate crime was added on to the case. Was that added on, you know, do you know why it was added on after it was that after they found evidence that the that Sam Woodward was part of a uh, white supremacist yeah. group yeah so that happened it, that happened as we started producing these revelations about him being a member of a Nazi terrorist organization and the sort of things that he had said online in private chats with other Nazis and that eventually is part of why he was um, charged with the hate crime in that in that matter, and so it would partially go back to our reporting, and a lot of it go back to the the DA and the sheriff's investigation there. But at first, they were not aware of that aspect of the case, and that was part of why we wanted to do the reporting was to say, look, there's a story out there; it's a big national story, and you're only getting a part of it. There's something else going on here, and something else that that you know, as you've both suggested, is part of this deep sickness in this, in the natural, uh, in our nation at this moment, you know, and this sort of current of, uh, ugliness in the nation at the moment. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned earlier about kind of think being surprised in the nineties when, when you kind of thought this movement, if you will, was kind of dying down or whatever. Um, the internet came along and got, became very popular. Right, right. Um, how important is the internet both, I guess, dark web and the regular web and social media, how important is that for them recruiting, educating, uh, and organizing? You know, and, and I should be clear, like my concerns until relatively recently, the last few years, were like institutional racism, institutional gender issues, you know, the sort of things that um, are bigger than small, than these organized groups. Yeah. I didn't think we'd see this sort of open, overt misogyny, racism, uh, nativism come out. To your question, the internet is everything. The internet is absolutely everything for these groups. Mm -hmm. In an earlier era, you wore clan robes, you hooded yourself, people didn't know who you were. The internet provides that anonymity now. But beyond that, the internet creates this, with the social media platforms that are out there, it creates these filter bubbles where people decide they're into a particular belief, and then all the other people they're communicating with share those same beliefs. And everything that that YouTube or um, Twitter or other platforms are suggesting that they check out falls into those beliefs. If you start following a lot of Nazis on Twitter, which I do, um, Twitter will keep telling you, hey, why don't you check out this other white supremacist? Why don't you check out this other fascist? Uh, and YouTube will do the same thing. If you start watching a bunch of uh, insane right-wing, extreme right-wing videos on YouTube, it'll keep suggesting, hey, why don't you check out another one? Yeah, how about this one? The Holocaust didn't happen. How about this one about some other insane, awful stuff? And so I think the internet provides an organizing tool that was never there before. It provides that anonymity. It provides the ability to test out these um, antisocial sort of personas. And it also reinforces people's um, people's pretty narrow belief systems, a lot of times without a lot of uh, contradiction. So I mentioned earlier, you know, the president fumbling on mm -hmm. responding to what happened in Charlottesville and uh, basically falling short of calling 
attention uh, or being outraged at the violent acts of these these groups because of these groups. There's this conversation about free speech mm. and and mm. their actions hinging on mm. an American value, uh, the belief of you know our constitutional right of free speech or the freedom of speech. And so for elected officials out there who don't really know how to respond to this and kind of try to pander to both, you know, say, well, there's violence on both sides. I I hate when that happens Mm. because there's a, in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, I'm just one person, but there's a right side and a wrong side. And I think the wrong side being a hate group, I don't necessarily consider that free speech. Well, there weren't, there wasn't just violence on both sides. There were fine people on both sides. Mm. Is that's what the president said. So I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, doing the reporting on this um, and doing the research and the fact finding. And how does that impact you as a journalist and walking that fine line between, you know, free speech, hate speech, supporting free speech and them using that as justification or calling it out and saying that's not free speech as a journalist? You know, I, I think there's been a fundamental misapprehension about a lot of the, the terms of this discourse, right? Which is that um, there is no such thing as free speech on somebody's corporate platform that they maintain, administer, run, and allow you to use for free. So if you're on Twitter, if you're on Facebook, if you're on YouTube and you're saying things, um, whatever it is, you don't have an unmitigated right to say what you want. You have a right to say what the company that owns those platforms thinks is okay. And I think like, yeah, that's, that's the reality of the situation. And um, to, it's been fascinating to me because what you've seen in the last year is a lot of people who are extreme rightists start talking about like, hey, maybe we need to um, turn uh, social media platforms into public utilities. So they're taking this extreme left view of like, you know, going to socialism to protect their, to protect their, their viewpoints. Whereas I think like, yeah, like you have basically a right to say awful things in the streets of a big city. You have the the right to write a book and say awful things. But like you should not be surprised if every now and then uh, the owners of these big social media platforms say, no, actually, we'd rather you didn't do that, mostly because it makes us look bad. You know, like, like of course, that's going to happen. Well, and of course, they exist for the advertising that they get. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. If, if the craziness you spew, at least, you know, you can hashtag and, and uh, name check some major brands. I think that's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, we'll open it up to our audience for questions. We do have a mic uh, that John's going to pass around. So if you got any questions for AC. I'm really glad to hear you speak today because I've, I, I now have a question that you prompted just from what you said today about the fact that the local police and the state police didn't connect in any way. Were you able to discern why that happened? Was it political? Was it power? You know, what, what was going on there? You know, you know, it's not entirely clear what, why that happened and why they didn't fully coordinate. Um, One, can have a lot of suspicions about that. You know, I think sometimes 
You have a big state police force that brings in hundreds of officers. You have a small town. Perhaps there's a power imbalance there. But I don't know for sure. And I don't think it's clear. It's still not even clear exactly why that happened. But somebody invited the state police in yeah. there. Yeah, the state police, the National Guard. There was hundreds of soldiers there with the National Guard. So that Guard. had to come from the governor. Yes, the governor. The governor uh, helped coordinate all that. But, excuse me, but why they didn't, you know, actually fully work together as a team, I, I'm not, I don't think anybody's entirely sure at this point. Inept at the very least. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Thanks. Um, bring us up to date on what has happened in the past year, but both any Charlottesville remaining specific stuff, but also to this wider question about uh, the growth or, or pushback against um, these groups. Yeah, I think key, key things have happened in the last year. And one is that this, this movement that was um, bound up in many ways with the Trump phenomenon from the, from the beginning, that the resurgence of the movement was in part because white power activists were piggybacking on the Trump phenomenon. I think what we've seen in the last year is um, more and more sort of white nationalist, white supremacist views make their way into the mainstream. And you can see if you turn on Fox News on any given night, there are several hosts there who sound a lot like um, the leading figures of the white supremacist movement. And that is a part of the mainstreaming that we've seen. When you see the president uh, tweeting about uh, farm seizures in South Africa and this sort of stuff, these are tropes of the extreme right and the white supremacist movement. So I think uh, that is one piece of it, is that these ideas have had great resonance and they're really helping to reshape uh, political discourse or take it back to a place where it was 50 or 100 years ago. Uh, another thing is that the movement itself, the, which is, I say, the extreme embodiment of views that are widely held by many Americans, um, has gone in different directions. People have turned to terrorism and they've said, we're not going to do protests, we're going to kill people. And that is, mm. that is a distinct faction. There are people who said, we're dropping out, the social cost of this is too high. And then there's another group that said, we're going to do flash mobs, we're going to do banner drops, we're going to do all, like, frankly, all this stuff that were sort of lefty political tactics uh, back in the day. And we're not going to announce that we're going to have a big rally and wait for everyone to show up and be mad at us. We're just going to do sort of hit and run guerrilla activism. So those are the sort of strands that you see out there now. Wait, so flash mobs, are they going to show up at a Home Depot and, and, and propose to one you know, yeah. another? And YMCA. Uh, do the YMCA. Uh, uh, you know, <clears throat> what, what they've done at times is show up, um, show up uh, to uh, disrupt like anti-ICE activist camps. They've shown up to um, do uh, events in support of immigration and the Customs and Border Patrol agents. Uh, they've shown up at all these sort of different places, been there for five minutes, taking photos, and we're out of here. Yeah. Uh, I want to call attention to the names of these groups mm. because they're not calling themselves, you know, KKK. Right. Uh, they're calling themselves like Rise Above Movement, Patriot Prayers, or Proud Boys. Mm. You know, names that kind of, they're not necessarily specific and I think that there's some dangers to that. I think that there's a real recruitment tool to that, you know, especially for young white guys. Yeah, that's like a, a thing that um, 
the older white supremacist movements were kind of really on the nose. They were like, we're the Aryan nations. And they would use a lot of Nazi imagery and sort of obviously fascistic imagery. The newer iteration of the movement oftentimes is much more sort of um, subtle, like you're suggesting, and sort of their exact intentions are not always totally clear. And they generally stay away from using things like the swastika or the SS lightning bolts or these sort of things that are obvious Nazi imagery. So I think you're absolutely right that that's um, a way these groups are sort of penetrating the mainstream. You know, another thing is that these are the kind of groups that will show up at a pro-Trump rally. And if you think of the earlier white supremacist movement, those guys would never show up at a rally for uh, either major party's candidate. You know, they would just say, uh, none of these guys are radical enough for us. So that's another way that they're trying to mainstream the movement and say, there's all this energy around President Trump. Maybe we can piggyback on that and get our message out and get new recruits. Is the Trump camp, let's just go directly at it, um, are they doing outreach to these groups or they're just not pushing away from these groups? No, I don't. From everything I can tell, there is no outreach from the Trump administration. There's uh, not a lot of direct links. But I think what the movement sees is when you get Trump's statement coming out of Charlottesville, they say that was a tacit endorsement or kind of a direct endorsement. Yeah, we're um, cheering that. Yeah. When you see things like the president retweeting white nationalist accounts, which he did throughout the, the election campaign, they say, he's our guy. Like, he's giving us a sign. When uh, the Republican National Convention happened in 2016, on the jumbotron going around the uh, arena was a quote from V. Dare, a white nationalist magazine. And it said, from V. Dare. So these are all the kind of signs that the movement gets. And they say, hey, you know, uh, he's not everything we want him to be, the president, but he's closer than anyone in modern history. And he's giving us the signs that he's on our side. Now, I want to wrap it back up to uh, about you know, being specific about law enforcement. And we started the conversation, we talked about law enforcement um, possibly being unprepared for mm. Charlottesville. Well, there's been two rallies now right here at home in the Bay Area in Berkeley that, you know, are these alt-right rallies mm. and, and whatnot. And I don't know if you remember, but the when the Patriot Prayers came, uh, there was all this talk. They they tried to do it at, in San Francisco and and it, a lot happened. We were able to shut them out of San Francisco. They ended up going to Berkeley. Um, but the president actually did did respond in calling attention to the, the elected officials here in San Francisco and saying they, you know, that they were on the wrong side, saying all, all the stuff that he normally would say. But looking back at the two rallies and even the one recently uh, upon the one year anniversary of Charlottesville, Berkeley PD, um, in my opinion, again, I'm going to be very careful and not necessarily, you know, lob allegations that aren't, may not be true, but it's my opinion that there's a disproportionate, disproportionate number of arrests from, you know, not not the alt right side or not these, mm. you know, hate group sides, but a, a large number of arrests from, I guess, those who are there to counter protest these groups. And so I was reading a, about this, and and then upon my reading, I also read that Berkeley PD did a little bit of doxing. Doxing mm. is the act of 
uncovering people's identities of those who were there counter-protesting these groups. So that really has led to me, to, you know, for me to conclude that law enforcement uh, can be complicit and coupled with the president's attitude and current attitude or, you know, non-response to these hate groups, I think that can be very dangerous to our community and add to the violent acts. You know, I think one of the things that's uh, an interesting phenomenon at work to to take off from from your question and statement is that one thing that happens in the aftermath of these rallies is the fascist groups, the neo-Nazi groups, the white supremacist groups, they will contact the police and they will say, you know, this guy in a black mask punched me or um, this counter-protester assaulted me. And the folks on the other side, um, the leftists, the anti-racists, the militant anti-fascists, they generally don't want to deal with the police. So part of what you get is you get an overrepresentation. The people that are like the fascists are say like, oh, I'm going to call the police and get help. The people who are anti-fascists typically don't want to get mixed up in the system at all. And so I think what you see partially is the reason why a lot of the prosecutions that come out of this is that sort of different dynamic. Um, but I think the other thing that we've seen is before, before the recent stuff in Berkeley, the police were putting out information on both sides uh, that they were arresting. But what they've, what one thing that's changed is they're putting it out on Twitter now and they're putting out a lot more detail. And I think that feels much more immediate and it feels like it's made for general consumption rather than for news media to go report on, you know, um, when they put up the mug shots and person's name and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As a member of the news media, what's it like to do these kinds of reports? I mean, do you get cooperation from police officers in the military? Um, do, you know, do you get threats? Do you, I mean, just what, I assume this must be a very difficult thing. You know, I've reported for more than 20 years and, and everything I've done has involved uh, difficult subjects. You know, right? you become so a I've traffic in, reporter. Right, right. So I've interviewed, mur I've interviewed a lot of murderers. I've done corrupt cops. I've, uh, worked in Afghanistan during the war, you know, all this kind of stuff. I will tell you that I think this group of people, the current white supremacist movement, are some of the most dangerous people I have ever, ever, ever dealt with. And that is because everything for them is total war. It's total war. There are, the rules of engagement are destroy your enemy at any cost. And that's actually not the way most criminal organizations act. Uh, most criminal organizations are like, oh, you know, I should not kill a journalist. I should not, you know, I should just stay away from the media. But these people, um, there are no, uh, they will use any tactic they can to, to mess with journalists and mess with people that they see as their enemies and opponents. And they um, are utterly happy to, um, go after people's families, to go after uh, their employers, and they see this as a sort of righteous cause. And what, what I mean is like, um, I think pretty much everybody that's covered this beat has had that kind of experience. Well, I just was saying that and knowing that and feeling that a lot of people still think that you can change hearts and minds. Can their hearts and minds be changed? No, you know, and, and like, so th this, this is a point to make. Look, I think like, we can universally, most of us can agree, fascism, a white supremacist government, that's not something that's like a great thing. Like that's 
you know, history has told us that's not a good way <laughs> to go. Uh, and so in that way, I don't think there's a debate to be had. But what I do think is true is that, is, is that a lot of these young men uh, do end up turning the other way. And they do end up saying like, oh, I got really hooked on this idea. I was high on hate. I was high on anger. And it's turned out to me that I don't believe those things. So I get contacted regularly by people who say, oh, I was in prison with that white supremacist and we were stabbing people. And you know what? In 2013, I realized I'm not a racist. Or uh, I was in a member of this group and I've decided it was wrong. I'm not a Nazi. And so I think people's minds do change and they do come around to that belief that like, oh, maybe I don't want to live in a racist, in a racist society. Maybe I don't want to live in a fascist society. I think they do change. Speaking of fascist societies, um, one of the surprises to me when I was reading about the growth of neo-Nazism in, in especially Eastern Europe mm. was, mm. you know, you're talking about lands that were devastated mm. by the Nazis, mm. but the, the new neo-Nazi movement, if I can call it that, over there, led from Russia. And Russia, of course, has been very proactively trying to sow, uh, you know, uh, problems among Western countries. Uh, by going by assisting extremist groups and and disruptive groups everywhere, do we know about any foreign influence in fueling or assisting these groups in the United States? Thanks for reminding me th yeah. about that. There's somebody I need to talk to in Ukraine actually about that. Um, I have not seen it. I have seen like a movement that really doesn't have very much money and is mm -hmm. able to function remarkably effectively with almost no money. Um, I think the thing that is a good point that you're making is where it becomes less clear is in the Twitterverse and in the social media verse where we have, we know that there's been lots of activity by um, a certain semi-hostile foreign power. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that, for example, in the wake of Charlottesville 2017, um, Twitter was overrun by what, what appeared to have been Russian bots spewing sort of uh, real divisive narratives around that. So I think what we see is probably assistance in a low key way in the cyber sphere, but I don't think we've seen a lot of money yet yeah. coming in. Hmm. That's interesting because Rob Rundo is mm. the guy that you first profile in mm -hmm. the documentary and he's the founder of Rise Above Movement. Right. And, you know, I think that he has the attitude that he's kind of the vigilante uh, neighborhood cop guy, yeah. uh, right? I mean, he was beating up MS-13 gang members and uh, went to jail for it, only got a couple years for stabbing somebody, comes back to Orange County and is mobilized. They have training camps. They uh, have recruitment tools. So I wonder where, you know, he's getting that money or what his job is. But but also, if you would address very quickly this mindset that they are the, you know, the vigilante cops, the guys who are going to save America. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what you see now is this, is that in the era of modern American demagoguery, there's always a scapegoat. There's always a demonized population. And particularly right now, that population tends to be brown folks or uh, Muslims. And these guys are like, we're going to be the vigilante force against what we see as an invasion of brown folks, Muslims, and people that look different than us. That's exactly how they see themselves. Mm -hmm. And they're getting that idea, I think, in part from the top. I'm going to add LGBTQ. Yes, you, yes. 
I mean, it's interesting because yes. I pulled that yeah. out from Blaze Bernstein, but Emily Gorzinski, mm. who was there at Charlottesville and documenting the whole thing, a trans woman, I mean, she moved out of the country. I right. don't know if it was yes. because of Charlottesville. It she was. ended up getting um, uh, drop kicked. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a really good point is that, and that's the sort of thing that gets overlooked perhaps in these discussions and I've been overlooking it today, is there's the current of misogyny within these groups is is deep and insane. You know, I just interviewed a guy who leads a Nazi group whose who's nom de guerre is rape. That's his nom de guerre. That's what people call him. I, I walked up and I said, hey, rape, what's going on? And the other thing is like this like intense, in, yeah, in, intense sort of hatred for trans folks, intense hatred for uh, anybody in the LGBTQ community. And this sort of sense that like, Everything that happens in that space is a deviation from some traditional past that never existed that we yearn for. Uh, of course, we're just talking about women and men. Were the, I mean, from the videos that I've seen, were the people at the, the so-called Unite the Right rally, what, 99% male, all male? I mean, are oh, there- Overwhelmingly, and that's in part because the, the women who are active in this movement are told not to come out to the events. They're going to be violent. You need to stay back at the hotel room and coordinate online for us. That's This is not your place. But in a lot of cases, they're just pushed totally out of the movement as well. I want to give the audience the last opportunity for any questions before we start winding down the show. And I ask the final questions. Yeah, Pat. Pat again, please. Thanks. <clears throat> About the... Uh, phenomenon of males who mm. turn after a period of time. Do you, do you think that that's, it's possible that some of them at least had started out as sort of unsophisticated, without a lot of knowledge about the politics of our country, who got caught up in what was a zero-sum game? Mm. And it's attracted was attractive to them, and they just thought life was zero sum. You either won or you lost, and they went with what they thought was a winner. I think, you know, some of these people I meet, it feels like their incoherent, inchoate uh, political beliefs are the product of uh, watching way too many YouTube videos, watching, reading way too many bad tweets, yeah. uh, getting too many dumb memes passed on to them on Facebook. But then there's other people that I meet that a common path that I see is folks get into libertarianism and they see that as like the, mm. an alternative to the current system. They get disaffected with that and then they eventually move into this sort of fascist or white supremacist, white nationalist worldview. And some of those people I think are, are quite considered and quite thoughtful. Um, but I think the, the overwhelming sort of thing is this reinforcement that they get and sort of lack of uh, intervention from authentic voices outside of their political bubble. And yet some do change. But some do change, yeah. And is I think it, that... Is that, a, is that a function of uh, maturing? I think so, in part. And I think, I think, you know, when I talk to people, it is just hard. In some ways, it's hard to be a racist in the U.S. in America, right now, you know, in 2018. Because you know what? Your neighbor might be African American guy, yeah. might be might be an Asian American woman, might be a really cool uh, lady who wears a hijab. And I think that people's real experiences with other human beings in the real world, rather than online, often 
push them away from the frankly bullshit that they've been sold online, you know? Um, would you say most of these people are first-generation racists? In other words, are they taught this at home? Or they're, you know, radicalized online or at school or among friends? I think, yeah, I think mostly, uh, mostly people that this is like in their formative years is something that they glom onto rather than like daddy was a Klansman, something like that. As we wind down, I, I, we brought up the president a lot. Mm. And you've been really great at, you know, staying... Uh, neutral uh, you're a reporter you're a journalist so you're not going to necessarily give your opinion on the president but um there's a social sociologist mm. who's featured in the documentary mm. and he brought up you know a hot topic like immigration right is something that the white nationalists will pick on and use to basically recruit from us the you know the public when when you stand on uh, fear-mongering, and you say, hey, the country's being invaded by the others. And that's exactly what the president is saying. It's hard not to have an opinion that the president is racist. Um, what what I would say is, um, and, and I've said this in, in other interviews, like I describe my beat as covering the new era of demagoguery in America. And I think there's like the things that the president says and, and does are unequivocally demagogic, whether it's demonizing journalists, we're the enemy of the people, whether it's demonizing brown people, whether it's demonizing adherents of uh, Islam, whether it's demonizing African-American athletes, uh, I think all of it. I mean, and I think it's very hard not to see that this is uh, a racial play, that this is a racist sort of uh, an appeal to the racist inclinations of a certain portion of the white populace. Yes, it's very hard to see that it's something other than that sort of demagoguery and racism. So to add to that, I mean, he's got two more years in office. Um, these groups are, I, I don't know if they're growing. It's good to know that they don't have a ton of money, mm. uh, but I think that the attitudes will continue to stay, or at least they'll be emboldened for the next two years if he stays in office. Would, would, would we just keep our head down, do what we do. You keep reporting, you keep turning out, producing these great documentaries to shed light. I mean, you know, what is it, uh, what is it for us? Some people are saying we show up to these protests and we counter and we fight back. You know, actually, I want to hear from you, from you, like what you. you think that the way forward is. Cause for me, I'll be out there reporting, like you said, and I'm not, I don't know what like the community response would be. What do you, what do you two think is like <laughs> a way, I know I'm putting you on the spot. No, I I'm love it. it. Thank you. You might be uh, the first to ever do it on the show. And <laughs> I love to actually be a part of the conversation instead of asking the questions. Uh, but John, you answer first. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the, I mean, the question of basically what, how to respond to this, uh, and who responds to it, yeah. that kind of it. Um, I mean, I think the government has a very important role. And part of this is the recognition that you have a certain portion of your population in every country, all through history, that is barking mad, to, for lack mm. of a better term, meaning that they're beyond... The, the the you know the, they're beyond the influence of say a good church or good parenting or a good serious argument to, to really get to the core of things 
and that they may simply not possess the faculty to think things through and such. Whatever it is, whatever the reasons are, they're there. And to some degree, the most you can do is just kind of keep them as low as possible in terms of power. And it was easier back when the two parties were a bit more mixed because you had kind of those crazies kind of mixed and floating around and both parties had their their demons, if you will. Um, where you, we are now, I mean, we the Republican Party is actually in one way a very weak party at the moment. They, they've shrunk. Therefore, the extremists are a larger voice in there. And therefore, they become a constituency that someone's going to play to. So Trump or not, someone is going to realize that's a core constituency that if I want this nomination, I have to go toward. What I was getting at when I just started was simply that I think part of being an adult <laughs> and part of recognizing real life in a democracy is, yeah, not all views are, are worth the same thing. And sometimes you do just have to keep the crazies out of power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, keep them out of power. Uh, I definitely want to go, for, you know, straight into, I think you talked about accountability mm. and, you know, Charlottesville, I was mad as hell. I mm. mean, a lot of that stuff shouldn't have happened. And I think that, yes, in the Bay Area, the conversation about police brutality and holding law enforcement uh, accountable, like that. That has been great in the Bay Area because Black Lives Matter and because we have a huge, you know, Black Lives Matter organization out here. But in certain places, like we don't have that. Um, I think that th there needs to be a lot of change in law enforcement, period. And I hate what I'm hearing out of even Berkeley PD. Uh, so, you know, I, 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 I feel like we have to address the whole reforming of police. Mm. I really do. I think as a country, we really need to, to talk about that. And then, of course, yes, electing officials, keeping those people out of power, uh, voting, creating community, continue to be to put ourselves out there. You said it best. I mean, it's really hard to be racist these days, and it's really hard to also be homophobic. I mean, this is an LGBTQ inclusive program, so I'm just going to go ahead and remind everybody that we're talking about Charlottesville, we're talking about these groups mm. because it also impacts and, and applies to the LGBTQ community, mm. uh, you, right? Um, what happened in Germany in the concentration camps that also LGBTQ people were included in that. And we don't put up the pink triangle during Pride at, in San Francisco just because we like a pink triangle. We're reminding folks how LGBTQ people were treated and so I think that we we need to be mindful of that and not be complacent. We talked about this in a program just a couple of weeks ago in which, uh, you know, history can repeat itself. It repeats itself with other communities. And we have to stand as allies and always remind ourselves we're not just out there in our own groups. And if we come together, these groups get drowned out. Uh, so... To me, what happened at Charlottesville never should have happened. Mm. You know, they should never capitalize on the headlines and, and Twitter and Facebook in this way. It's happening because I think that we're not necessarily holding certain people accountable. People in power are not necessarily being held accountable. They're not saying the right things. They're not addressing the issues and being transparent about it. And sometimes I think elected officials um, are too soft. 
I think are too afraid to call it out for what it is. Mm. I, I don't know if the president is in fact racist, but I do think that he's exploiting the groups. I do think that he knows they're part of his voter base. And, uh, and we don't, I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm angry and I think we need to be more angry. I, I appreciate it. Cause I, I just like, people have asked me this and I'm not, a am not like a, I'm not the person who, who can formulate the community response or the activist response. I'm just, I'm bad at thinking those things through. What I, what my career is, is sort of critiquing um, powerful institutions through investigative journalism. What I can tell you about the policing side of this is that I think until very recently, there has been a real extreme focus on what's concern, considered to be Islamic oriented terrorism and almost no focus on terrorism that comes out of white supremacist and Nazi activity. And I think that's been a big failing by law enforcement. And I think that's starting to change. But for a long time, this stuff started like, this movement really actually started getting steam in 2008 when Obama came mm. into office as a reaction to Obama. And it has ticked up and ticked up and ticked up. And then it got kind of supercharged in the Trump era. But there was really very little understanding from law enforcement that like, hey, like crazy white people can kill a lot of folks if you're not careful. That's the story of Oklahoma City and you should not forget it, you know? Thank so you. So I think, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to wind down and we're going to thank AC for taking some time out to come be with us. Uh, thank you for the documentary. And please, I, I mean, whatever we got to do to support the work that you do, please let us know because that is super critical. And I think the message today is that we're all in this together. Yeah. Right. And I would remind people you can check out, you can watch this documentary at the Frontline website or just go to Google and search for uh, documenting. Hate. Thank you. Charlottesville. <laughs> uh, I got it off of my Roku or, you know, on, on the PBS channel. So it's still there as a spotlight. Yeah. So definitely watch it for sure. And um, how can we support you? I mean, I thought that was really, that's probably the most important question. No, here. I mean, that's that's the thing. It's like, if um, it's been exciting. This has been a film um, that we did that actually people shared a lot on social, social media, though I've I've said lots of bad stuff about it today and have streamed it. And if you if you like the film and you find it important, like if you want to tell people about it, um, pass around the link to it, to the streaming. It's been exciting for us to actually see the film have something of a life after it airs and have people keep returning to it online. So that that's the thing that I would ask. Thanks so much for joining us here for the Michelle Miao Show taping at the Commonwealth Club. We're here every Thursday at noon. Babe. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boys came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. 
The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face -face with today's thought leaders.